Good morning. This is John Hulsman, and welcome to the weekly Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I'm back in the office here in Milan, a rainy day, looking out as the first buds of spring are there, the narcissus are coming up, which is a sign that winter is about to be over and we can move on into the spring. But for me, this is just a jumping off point as March is one of my busiest months so far beyond the fact that we're getting the book specs, and I'll be excited to talk more with about you with this about you as we go along. Uh, but while I'm looking through the book specs today with my chief of staff, John Goodnight, and we start to make progress on getting this thing out to print, uh, we at the same time have to run the do our day job. And this means that at the weekend, I'll be off for Barclays to play two war games out in Asia on a post-Ukraine world, first in Singapore and then in Sydney. I look forward, I've worked with them before, which is always great fun. They're a great client and we're gonna do a deep dive on this. And then I make my way back, the longest single flight leg in the world, which is from Sydney to London, 23 hours and 55 minutes of flying. I'll lose all sense of time. How many peanuts can you eat? How many movies can you watch? How long can you sleep? Well, we're about to find out. <laughs> when I'm back from that, I'm literally back long enough to throw the underwear into the dryer and get the shirts clean. And then I'm off to London to Finnovate, where I'm giving the keynote on the state of the world that we live in. Excited to be doing this for our Informa, our great Informa colleagues in London. I've never done the Finnovate stream before. So excited to be doing that and keynoting that. And then later in the month, we have a home game. We are in Lake Como at the wonderful Villa Dest to play yet another war game on the post-Ukraine world. And as I was playing so many games on the post-Ukraine world, I thought we might as well have a dry run here in our Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast for this week. Um, there's a lot of good news and a lot of bad news about the global geostrategic state of play a year into the Ukraine war. And remember, wars change things and catalyze other things that nobody's been paying attention to. They're a bolt of lightning that makes it clear what's going on on the ground geostrategically, as well as catalyzing things. As Otto von Bismarck said, one of my favorite quotes, when you draw the sword, you roll the dice, that things change and change in ways that you can't predict beforehand. If the um, statesmen of 1914 had known that what they were doing would lead to the ruination of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollern Empire in Germany, the Romanov Empire in Russia, and the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, they might have acted differently, but that's the point. They didn't know that the war took on a life of its own. And the Ukraine war is doing much the same. And so I thought we'd do a deep dive on what our war games will be about so I could think aloud with you in my community about what's going on. Well, and the other reason I did this was that my good friend Walter Russell Mead, who is uh, contributing on the editorial board as a contributing editor as, uh, as am I, at Aspen, Italy, which is a great honor. Walter is one of the best foreign policy analysts in the world. Uh, I commend you to read his masterpiece, Special Providence, one of the best books ever written about U.S. foreign policy and a source I look at all the time. And uh, Walter is always worth listening to, agree or disagree. He is provocative in the best sense of the word and is very often right. However, I'm responding both to the war game to come and to something about Walter that I don't think is right, that he's foreseeing the possibility of a war in the Middle East going sky high, and I just don't see this. The reason Walter thinks this is that he thinks that the access of autocracies, China, Russia, 
um, Iran and to a lesser extent hangers on like North Korea and Venezuela are coordinating what they're doing more and more. And he says that without there being any empirical evidence of that happening. Are they taking advantage of what each other are doing? Well, yeah, I think they are. Um, are they informally in contact? States are. When I was in D.C., we were in contact with everyone. So, of course, they are. But does this mean there's some sort of specter-like alliance, number three? How are the sale of narcotics going? No, it doesn't. And, in fact, we've seen China back way off on giving Russia military aid up to now in the Ukraine war, whereas the United States and the Western allies have plowed right in and done this immediately. Uh, the Russians have yet to receive meaningful military aid from China, as another great foreign policy analyst right up there with Walter in the top five, George Friedman uh, of Geopolitical Futures says, the reason for this to now is simple. Occam's razor, the simple, most elegant solution, is often the best. And the reason for this is simple, that China has too much economically to lose if it were to go full in and helping their Russian ally. And in doing so, would incur sanctions that would rain down upon them. And as their economy is still far too dependent on trade for their liking, they are at, at risk from the West of significant sanctions that would really put a dent in Chinese economic growth, and they haven't been prepared to cross that bridge up to now. And even if they do provide them with some aid, as, as Friedman says, it's likely to be small arms and nothing like the aid the West has given Ukraine, where it has literally sustained the United States as the Ukrainian war effort. So there hasn't been this grand coordination. It's exactly the opposite of what Walter is saying. So I don't see this as a specter-like thing where we need to watch out for a unified block working against us. But that doesn't mean Walter's wrong that there isn't danger out there. Think of it this way. There are two great superpowers presently in the world, the United States and China. Beneath them, though, and this is where the world is more multipolar than just the strict old lazy bipolar definition, there are a series of great powers that are very, very important to what goes on. And unlike in the last Cold War, in this Cold War, these folks have an awful lot of room to run with the football. And by that, I mean that they can, as they wish, side with one side or the other, the United States or China, or have an autonomous foreign policy of their own. This was not the case during the last Cold War, where pretty much everybody had to pick a side, even the non-aligned movement, which was led ostensibly by Nehru's India, in practice was on the side of the Soviets, had much closer ties to the Soviets than to others. And so I think this is an important fact that last time, as we've said before, like a good Graham Greene novel, the tragedy of a Graham Greene novel is that nobody could really choose that in the end, there were only two uh, superpowers. It was checkers. Uh, you had to side ultimately with the United States or the Soviet Union, even, even if you weren't thrilled with your choices, the rest of the world had to. That's not the world we live in now. A lot of countries beneath the two dominant superpowers, in this case, the United States and China, have an awful lot of room to make choices on their own. And nowhere is this more true than amongst the great powers. And, and who do we mean here specifically? Certainly India, certainly Japan, certainly Russia, all in Asia, I might add, certainly the European Union, and certainly the UK Anglosphere. Sundance to America's Butch Cassidy, the English-speaking Dominions plus the UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, the United States and the UK, the countries that share open source intelligence through the five eyes 
uh, signals intelligence every week. I mean, that have the closest alliance, so close that no one ever considers it. And really, we should because it is on its own another great power. Well, these these countries beneath the two superpowers have an awful lot of room to run with the football to make their own decisions to either side with one or the other country, uh, one one or the other superpower, and they can do they can do both of these things. And if, if we look at before the Ukraine war, we saw the United States in, in an enviable position because between these two superpowers, neither of them have anything like enough strength to dominate the world on their own. And so the country that has the most great and regional power allies wins, is going to control the world, is going to be the determinant factor in the world one way or the other. And that's just that simple but profoundly important and not commented on nearly enough. The idea that the neoconservatives have that the United States could set its could set the rules on its own. It could look at the rest of the world as the Romans did, the Mediterranean, Mare Nostrum, RC, they called the Mediterranean. The United States doesn't have near that power. I'm just about to go out to Asia. And last time I was out there, I literally went around the world in nine days. And I'm going to say something profoundly banal, but profoundly important. The world is really big. And the idea that any one superpower presently can control the whole of it is wishful thinking on the part of the neoconservatives or on the doom mongers who think that China will inexorably do the same. That, that's not going to happen either. And so in both these cases, you see that they're going to need allies. And at the great power level, the United States is still doing pretty well despite the Ukraine war. If we look at the beginning of the Ukraine war, we see that the United States had clustered around it the UK Anglosphere, Sundance to America's Butch Cassidy. And, and let's think about this. That This is, again, one of the most unremarked upon, profoundly important things in the world. In the 20th century, these five countries, the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, five countries had three choices that they could individually make about the big things that happened, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War. So there were five countries making three choices. There were 15 separate choices that had to be made. And it is astounding that each time, every single one of those 15 times, those five countries chose to be on the same side in a profoundly close alliance. That's a record of alliance that's unmatched by any other two groups among the powers in history. And the idea that we don't talk upon it, it's just so commonplace, no one even thinks about it, doesn't mean it's not profoundly important. And true to form, as our new era is evolving before the Ukraine war, the UK Anglosphere was solidly lined up behind the United States. At the same time, India more and more was lining up behind the United States, particularly as China threatened its line of actual control, their undemarcated border, and were taking hundreds of square miles of territory. Chinese bullying was throwing India into America's arms. India was already under Modi, nervous about Chinese aggression and expansionism, and this was now getting to a fever pitch with this undeclared war along the border. And so stupidly, Xi threw India into America's arms. So the biggest and most important rising power in the world, India, with all the catch-up growth, as we've talked about before, the world, that the only country that, that's going to rather effortlessly grow 6 to 8% in the next generation, was thrown into America's arms. So you have UK, Anglosphere, and India on the side of the United States. At the same time, Japan, under the visionary leadership of former premier and desperately missed after his tragic assassination, Shinzo Abe, had seen the, the China threat before anybody else. And in fact, Abe had set up an economic 
Free Trade Zone to Counter Chinese Influence, CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, and kept that going even when the United States foolishly walked away from it. And Abe was the instigator of the Quadrilateral Initiative, a mini-NATO designed to counter Chinese aggression, and it has exactly in it who you'd want, Great Power Japan, Great Power India, Anglosphere member Australia, and Superpower America. And he helped set this up. So India, firmly on side um, at the time, Japan even more on side, and UK Anglosphere even more on side. All these great powers lined up with the United States. Nobody lined up with China. There were two countries that tilted between neutralism going their own way and different twists. Europe would, would lean toward America and also lean toward neutralism. The Europeans grudgingly knew that they needed the United States, though under Merkel, Germany, the dominant power within Europe, moved to a much more neutralist position. And the reason for this is simple, that the German economic model, the motor of Europe, was cheap Russian gas, was the input to high-end German manufacturing, to selling these things to China as the output. So the two autocracies were both the input and the output of the German economy. This is a huge problem from Europe going forward, as both are, to put it mildly now, after a year of war, highly problematic. But this moved Germany to a much more neutralist position. This, this silly notion that trade would remake Russia and China as allies was really just wish fulfillment so that they could trade with the devil. And indeed, they did. But this led Europe to more and more drift toward neutralism. Russia, on, while still having a foot in the American camp, knowing grudgingly they needed NATO as the ultimate security guarantor. And there was a lot of investment from the United States as well. So that, that led them one foot in the American camp, one foot in neutralism. Conversely, Russia had one foot in the Chinese camp and one foot in neutralism. The reason for this for the Russians, and we've talked about this, it's the Batman problem, that nobody wants to wear Robin's ugly tights that somebody in this great nationalistic combine between China and Russia is going to have to be second banana. And the obvious second banana choice in this case is, China, is Russia. Pardon me. It has to be Russia. Its economy is the size of the state of Texas, whereas China is a peer competitor of the United States, experiencing over a generation 8-plus percent of growth. And so we have these things going on at the same time. So Russia didn't want to be second banana to China, which is what it would have to be. So although it leaned toward China, it feared for American hegemony for obvious reasons. It kept one foot in its own camp because it didn't want to end up in the Chinese pocket, which is a cold and dark place to be. And that's where we were before the Ukraine war got going. Now a year in, there's been significant movement. First, here are the things that haven't changed at the great power level. At the great power level, Japan, if anything, even more on side, even under Fumio Kishida, uh, the ultimate successor to Abe, who only got his position because Abe's faction in the Liberal Democratic Party, which is the largest and most powerful, put him there. And so Kishida went from being a dove before his ascension to pr the premiership to being an Abe-style hawk. Why can we count on him doing, maintaining this position? Because if he didn't, the Abe faction would dump him in a, as like a hot potato and he'd be out in his ear. And so that's the best possible guarantee. And indeed, Kushida has behaved exactly as Abe would have liked when he installed him. And so Kushida, if in some ways, is out Abe to Abe and is firmly in the American camp. No change at all. Secondly, UK Anglosphere, no change at all. And in fact, the AUKUS defense agreement, an old-style defense agreement between the United States, Australia, and the United States, 
is actually adding new life to this very old, very tried and true alliance. So that hasn't changed in the least either. However, India has, and this has been fascinating, and more about this in a minute, but India has moved or has this contradictory position that totally suits its interests. I don't know that they can keep that position going forever, but I can see why they're trying to live with the contradiction that within the Indo-Pacific, the most important region in the world, India still is resolutely pro-American, doing things with the quadrilateral initiative, talking to the United States constantly about Chinese aggression and expansionism in the region, and behaving as it did before as a broadly pro-American great power. But at the global level, it hasn't done this. It has maintained resolute neutrality over Russia and the Ukraine war. Again, the only question that matters in political risk is the one I'm just about to ask. Why? Why is this? Simple enough. Uh, China tra or India traditionally has, been a, has had close ties to Russia that go back to the Cold War, where it tilted toward the Soviet Union. It still gets around 40% of its military wherewithal Russia wherewithal from Russia militarily, and they've had this kid for generations. They have the spare parts, all the boring things that matter. They have the spare parts from Russia. They've had the supply pipeline forever. So even as the Chinese uh, threaten India and as the Indian military looks for alternate sources of weaponry, Israeli and American and French primarily, those three, all of them are crowding into the Indian arms market. But Russia, by plurality, remains the most important military supplier. And then cr critically, because Russia is supplying oil to energy-starved India at cut-rate prices. As Europe has shut off the spigots for Russian oil and natural gas, China and India have picked up the difference. And in fact, Russian revenue for, nat for energy last year didn't fall, despite all the talk about sanctions working. They, they, in effect, haven't worked at all. They've just, as capitalism would have you do, understand it, they've diverted those energy supplies from Europe to the next available buyer, China and India. And in fact, India and China have got them at cut rate prices. Uh, the, the Indians have done this through rupees, so they haven't violated Western sanctions. And no, no Westerner wants to pick a fight with India anyway. But India, for all these very good reasons, maintains the contradictory position that over the Indo-Pacific, it is pro-American, but more broadly, it is neutralist. So India has moved into the neutralist camp. At the same time, Russia finds itself firmly as Robin to China's Batman. There, there's no more hedging. Putin has done so, so terribly in the war. He has no other options but to drift toward the Chinese camp. First, they're going to have to buy his energy. Second, he desperately wants them to give military supplies. As Walter said, even if they don't give enough, and they won't, and it won't be some coordinated thing, it'll be small arms, etc. Nothing on the scale the United States and the Europeans are giving to Ukraine, but that's an obvious market. And from a great power point of view, they're the only friend that Russia can have on the horizon that it's become, at the great power level, at least a pariah state. So we now have a new state of play. We have the United States, still with Japan, still, still with um, on side, still with the UK Anglosphere. We have Russia with China, and we have the EU. The other big change now firmly back in the American camp is India moves toward neutralism. So pro-American, we have the EU, we have China, we have the EU, we have the UK Anglosphere, we have Japan all siding with the US, we have India neutral, and we have Russia and China together. The reason the EU has moved back almost doesn't need me, need me even to say, but suddenly NATO is in brain dead, as President Macron had said just a few years ago. Suddenly insurance matters when, when, when the world is flooding, 
And suddenly in the cataclysm of Ukraine, people have remembered it's good to have an army. And so having the United States security guarantee behind them means that longtime neutral countries like Sweden and Finland suddenly want to join NATO, that nobody's talking about there being any alternatives, that America becomes the only game in town, and that this has been going on is obvious. And so like it or not, and they don't like it, uh, the Europeans find themselves back in the American camp. The other reason, as I said, is the German economic model is a catastrophe, has fallen apart. Gone are the days of cheap Russian gas inputs, and possibly gone are the days of China being a source of exports, of outputs. And so the, the entire economic model that keeps the continent going has collapsed, and they're going to have to find a new one. So given all the calamities there, they have sheltered under the American umbrella. Well, that sounds great. I mean, those are real changes. India's moved to a neutral position. The EU's moved toward an American position, and Russia's moved toward a Chinese position. And so at the great power level, you know, that's an eminently livable world for the United States if it bothers with the boring but vital task of alliance management, of keeping that alliance together. That means the United States would remain the predominant power well into the future. You can sense that I'm coming up with a but. But something else has been exposed that is far less decent from an American point of view and is profoundly worrying and lies behind what I think is some of Walter's misgivings in his article, uh, Walter Russell Mead's misgivings. And, and it's something that we absolutely now, now have to focus on and is a giant political risk for the West going forward. At the great power level, things look pretty good. At the regional power level, the next level down, a bunch of states that, again, in this much more diffuse world, that beneath this bipolarity, there's a thriving multipolar world. And beneath it, at the regional level, you have a state of profound agnosticism about the Ukraine war. And it's striking. Nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world are neutral over the Ukraine war. Let me say this again. Nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world, what Jack Kennedy would have called the third world, what we call the developing world now, are profoundly neutralist over the Ukraine war. They're siding with neither the United States nor China because as regional powers, and this, was, this is math, this is just structural realism, they want to try to avoid being in the pocket of any superpower. Of course they do. They want to chart their own course if possible. They're not uniting together, but their national interests are the same because they come at the world from the same structural position. Who do I mean? Who are these developing countries? By the way, the exception of the 10 most populous countries in the world to this point is, of course, the United States is on that list. But who else is on that list? Who are we really talking about here? Countries like Indonesia, countries like China, countries like India, countries like Turkey, countries like Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, Nigeria are on this list. Countries that at the regional level matter. If you can add in as well countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, which, is, which is studiously trying to tilt less toward the United States and more to a neutralist position. That across the globe, these countries are not jumping onto the side of the Ukrainians, despite the Russian, the obvious Russian aggression. And the reason they're not is that it's not in their national interest to do so, to line up in lockstep with the United States. Far better to hedge thing, with things moving forward. China's economy, even slowing down, is one of the two base economies running the world. You don't want to cut yourself off to that. Why in the world should you? Particularly as in a manufacturing sense, it's moved ahead of the United States. 
You're not going to cut yourself off to this if you can help it. You also want to hedge about America that worries you. Can America, in its era of, geo, of political polarization between the two parties, maintain a consistent foreign policy? That's an open question that if you're a regional power, really, you know, something you're thinking about is, is the United States going forward, going to, as it did in the first Cold War, by a miracle, by a bunch of very fine statesmen in both parties, Eisenhower and Kennedy and Nixon and Reagan and Truman and FDR, can they manage a coherent single foreign policy in a democratic system that is increasingly polarized? Well, they're not sure they can, and they're not sure they want to give up the opportunity to arbitrage and see what happens. You sit it out and wait and watch what happens, and then you tilt accordingly. And this is where we are right now. These countries are profoundly silent when the United States urges them to do more. And when I read editorial after editorial telling me we should just talk to them, this is a fantasy that somehow in talking to them, they're going to come around, give up their national interests, and march in lockstep behind the beat of the American drum. And so moving forward, as Jack Kennedy learned in the 1950s when he used his father's vast wealth to go see the world, to go see the emerging world, we have to start planning that if we want to win this long-term contest and help order the world moving forward, um, it is vital, vital, vital that we very quickly uh, really spend a lot of time and a lot of energy getting to understand what are the concerns individually and collectively of these regional powers of the emerging world. Because if we don't get them on side, the idea that the United States is going to predominate this new world uh, without doing so is simply wishful thinking. We have an awful lot of work ahead. Yes, geostrategically at the great power level, things are tilting the American way it's a year into the Ukraine war. But the Ukraine war has exposed in a bolt of lightning this other reality. And this other reality is pressing down on us and doing so very quickly. We've got to deal with the emerging powers of the world or we will live in a world where we don't order it, where at best there's chaos and no one orders the world, and at worst, the Chinese do. And that's not a world any of us want to live in. Thanks very much. Very happy to get this one out. The global geostrategic state of play a year into the Ukraine war. A big think idea about the, the plates moving, the plate tectonics of the world, the grand forces that are going to shape the world that we and our children live in, the weather that people are going to have to invest in for the next generation. Uh, it's great to be at the cutting edge of this and it's great to share it with you. For all of those of you who haven't so far, please do subscribe. So many of you have, and we're incredibly grateful. And for those of you that subscribe, please do give. We're only asking $7 a year to give you this cutting edge, fascinating look as our era, as it evolves in real time. I love sharing thinking aloud with you guys, and I will be sure to do one on the road next week in Asia, the Indo-Pacific, where all the risk of the world lies and all the world's future economic reward. And I'll be at the fulcrum of where it's at, and we'll do a broad podcast then. Take care and have a great weekend.